I released the book of basketball in 2009. I swore I was done. What else was there to say? The book was 704 pages long. I figured out the secret of basketball with help from Isaiah Thomas then used it to rank the top 96 players of all time. I blew up the basketball hall of fame and turned it into a five level Egyptian pyramid. I figured out the 33 greatest what ifs ever. I solved every MVP debate. I made the case for Russell over Wilt. I explained why MJ was the greatest ever. I wrote hundreds of pop culture references, at least 250 inappropriate jokes, and God knows how many footnotes. I even drove to San Diego for the epilogue to spend time with Bill Walton. And when the book reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, that was all I ever wanted. I was done. I swore to myself I would never do a sequel. Well, I kind of lied. So much has changed in the NBA these past 10 years. I couldn't help going back. Who could have seen the three-point boom coming? Curry's Warriors going 73-9? and The Harden trade? The player empowerment era? The process? Advanced metrics? The decision? Cleveland winning a title? I repeat, Cleveland winning a title? Well, why write a sequel when I could turn that book into a living, breathing podcast, something that juggled interviews and pyramid podcasts and rewatchable game podcasts about famous games. What's my top 100 now? What's my pyramid? What's the new biggest what if of all time? Could the 86 Celtics have handled the 17 Warriors and all those threes? What did I learn from spending so much time over the last years with people like Bill Russell, Magic Johnson, Kevin Durant, Jalen Rose, Isaiah Thomas, and so many others? Think of it as my basketball book coming to life in audio form, reinvented, reincarnated, retooled, recreated for 2019 and beyond. It's the Book of Basketball 2.0. It's launching on November 6th. Presented by State Farm. See you there. David? Writers and editors from Deadspin quit in mass this week. We'll discuss, but first what I want to know is, what is the appropriate Deadspin headline for the destruction of Deadspin? <laughs> um, dang. Uh, you know, you always think you're good at writing blog headlines until you put on the spot. Um... Is it? Should I go with like a cl- like a classic of the of just the headline? Is it form or is this a de- like? Should it be like a, like dead spin to go media? We dropped dead or? Um, <laughs> oh yeah, but that's he- a little more little no. more tabloid. Give give, give me some dead spin. Okay, well wait, I have one more headless website found in aimless media empire. Is that good? <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah. So it's like the like the haters guide to the. Uh, go media imp- well, no that's not funny um, yeah I was thinking like Deadspin the- gets need in the dick and balls <laughs> right getting go closer media. right uh, why your sports blog sucks ah. because nobody because nobody works there anymore I think we got it <laughs> okay. well done sir we are the why your media podcast sucks of media podcast this is the press box a part of the ringer podcast network Media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. We got lots and lots of stuff to talk about today. Talk about Twitter's decision to ban political ads. We'll nominate journalism's anonymous source of the week. And we'll read a whole bunch of listener mail about New York Times columnist Ross Douthat. Is there anything more enticing than that? (laughs) But David, where we're starting today is obvious. It's the fall of Deadspin. Because boy, is there a lot to say. 
In case you missed it, the tension between Deadspin and their overlords at Geo Media had been simmering for weeks. And then on Monday, the overlords sent a memo telling Deadspin writers they couldn't write about anything that didn't have a sports angle. Acting editor and Deadspin lifer Barry Pacheski said he would pass on that order. He was fired. And by Thursday, around 20 Deadspinners had quit, including Tom Lee, Laura Wagner, and Drew McGarry. The nub of this is that the new owners of Deadspin weren't going to let Deadspin be Deadspin anymore. And the writers and editors said, we ain't going to participate in the destruction of our own site. Uh, And then we learned this morning as we record this podcast that Dave McKenna, who is not on Twitter, has also resigned from Deadspin. Former editor Megan Greenwell tweets, Deadspin no longer employs a single writer or editor. So that's it. Wow. That's that's game over in every way. I guess to start here, what were the Cousin Sal odds that this was the way Deadspin was going to go in a fight with an asshole boss? Uh, Incredibly high. I mean, it just... One to one? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you if you would ask me a year ago or five years ago or something, then yeah, I mean, I think that would have been if it was going to go, that was the way it was going to go. Um, I it all just seems so implausible, as despite how inevitable it sort of seemed, right? I mean that that um, a site with that was by all accounts profitable and incredibly influential, had a bunch of name recognition readership and an identity identity in an era where that's maybe the most important thing um for you know repeat consumption mm-hmm. um it just seems so uh it just it it's just it seems so wild and um and it also seems like as you know when we we're going to talk I'm sure we've talked about the management from go Me- the go media side and Jim Spanfeller and these names will come up con- you know throughout this conversation but you know, no matter whose side you're on, no matter who, I mean, even if you were completely you're convicted on Jim of Jim Spanfeller's side. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you're convicted of the, I mean, I'm, you know, there's been a lot of people, I think, who would say that uh, to varying degrees that the dead spinners brought this on themselves. Right. And and I and I, I'm not particularly interested in like getting into the details there. But even if you were convicted of that, that notion. It does seem wacky that their that management wasn't able to find a working ar- arrangement that everyone could live with right i mean cuz there's just so much there's so much more to be lost than to be gained um it would seem from that that point of view they didn't want to own the site it doesn't seem like or they didn't right. want they didn't want they may have wanted to own some kind of zombie site called deadspin that was notionally about sports that like surfed off their traffic and their the name that they built up but they didn't want to own the deadspin Mm-hmm. At all. And it's just so, it's so weird and messed up that she's like, we're going to buy this and we just don't want you to do anything that you're, we don't want you to do anything you're doing. And the whole, and by the way, the whole, you know, look, hey, you saw this in their explanation. It's, you can do any sports post you want. It just has to have a sports angle. So if people are booing Trump at the World Series, that's fine. Look, all we're asking is that you have a sports angle. That, that never, that never works. Because when people start to limit the stuff like that, they're going to come back and limit more, right? That's mm-hmm. not going to be the end of it. They're, they're not going to be like, okay, you know, we've, we've closed off these categories, but that's it. You can write anything you want. They're going to, people like that always come back for more until you can't write about other stuff. 
So I don't believe that at all. And, you know, obviously it was, you know, after Pacheski was fired, it was time to go because the site wasn't the site anymore. I like what you said about identity because, again, however you feel about it, one thing that was interesting to me about Deadspin was it was one of the few journalistic entities in 2019 that had a coherent point of view as a website. Yeah. You know, now we kind of follow everybody as these disembodied collection of writers that you like, that you follow on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And Deadspin was one of the things that's left that was still a publication with a voice and where the headline copy was the same. And the voice would vary a little bit between, you know, depending on who was writing the piece, but it was a voice. It was a kind of house voice. And I just don't, I don't, I don't find that anywhere. And I, you know what, I'm, that's one of the things I miss about old media is that idea that you could have a publication that stands for something and sort of sounds a certain way. And they were really one of the last places that I think had that. Do you agree? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, I mean, listen, I mean, it's undeniable that like Barstool Sports has a voice, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, there, no. there are other places out there that have a voice. I mean, I think, you know, your okay. mileage may vary on how much you want to hear that voice. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that, that um, what made, uh, I mean, what made Deadspin so kind of incredible was that they were able to have an identity, have a voice and maintain it over you know, numerous sort of regime changes in house. I mean, I'm sure the the avid fans were aware when an editor left and a new one was hired. But overall, Deadspin seemed to sort of have a you know an editorial ethos, uh, an identity, like we both said, um, that that outstripped whatever was going on in house and just sort of the larger um, the larger shifts in the in the marketplace and the in their parent company uh you know it everything that was going on around them in the world they seemed sort of impervious to uh and that and that's i mean there there was something sort of magical about that i also think it was a well edited site another thing Incredibly. you don't see a well, lot in 2019 right i can speak from firsthand experience i mean obviously i, I should probably should have said this up top i, I wrote for deadspin um for you know minimal uh, pay for <laughs> quite some time in a part-time capacity. We, um, we were living together at the time. I know exactly how biddable that was. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, they gave me an opportunity. I mean, when when uh, I mean, that was my first. You know, writing as the masked man. My first, I think, you know, real published writing in a lot of ways. And and um, and you know, I owe them a debt of gratitude. But on the editorial side, I mean. I can name Tommy Craig specifically, but I worked with some other other editors along the way. I mean, they they turned me into a writer. You know, I mean, they edited me in a way. Uh, Tommy specifically edited my my stuff with such care um, and such commitment to the to the craft um, in a way that I mean, for a blog is just unheard of. I mean, absolutely unheard of. Um, and that I think you know contributes to the coherence the voice that I was talking about but also just to the I mean I think that the you know it's it's hard to have an identity I mean identities are like I said before are really important in this day and age but quality is maybe one of the hardest things I mean one of the most 
the most the rarest things uh, in the publishing world that we are in right now. And that commitment to quality, um, you know, it's it's not the sort of thing you see on a lot of the sites that they were nominal competitors with. I, uh, really, any sites, because you know, there there we could name a handful of well edited sites on the interwebs, including our own. But again, I look at a lot of so-called quality publications. And really the most important thing is to have a piece that says something about topic X appear at this time, usually 10 yeah. seconds after whatever news event happened. And it doesn't really matter what it is. You see so many terrible long form stories now, so many columns that have like a thousand retweets and you read it and it's just, it's just bad. It's really badly written and edited. Um, they didn't do that. And, and that always impressed me. The, um, I think another thing I would want to sort of put on their legacy board is this way that about 10 years ago, and you mentioned Craig's, they really leaned into muscular, socially attuned sports writing. And it's important to remember because now whenever you see a piece like that, people say, oh, you're, oh, that person is just signaling to Twitter. You know, they're, 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 they're talking about race and gender and class and all those other things. And, and they're trying to get, you know, people to retweet them. Ten years ago, you were not signaling to anybody when you wrote those kind of pieces. There, there was not an audience. And when Deadspin started doing it, even their own commoners would hate those kind of stories. Yeah. <laughs> when they would go in on Donald Sterling before he was thrown out by the NBA, the whole stick to sports thing was created because – it back I, one of the first ones anyway was in 2012 when people were mad at sports writers for having an opinion about Obama versus Romney on Twitter. Right. They they didn't create that kind of sports writing, but they did it. They did it for a younger audience, right? They did it within all the comedy, press criticism, all the other stuff they were doing. And to me, that that's a huge legacy thing because I think, you know. In some cases, a lot. In some cases, a little. Mainstream sports writing has really moved toward that a lot more. It's one of been been one of the bigger changes in my lifetime to see mainstream sports writers really engage with that stuff. And again, I think Deadspin had a big factor in pulling everybody that way. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Um, you know, there was also uh, yeah. You know, there were some low some low points in their publishing history, and that's what I think a lot of people remember. I mean, I think that part of that is a lot of that is um, you know, nobody is gonna remember like the brilliant twist that they put on, you know, a gamer from the, the NBA playoffs in, you know, two thousand and nine. You know, <laughs> I mean, the, no, like there's the, the, like the real genius, the real care of every sentence of every publication that in a lot of ways, I you know, I was the identity of of the site is is going to be forgotten. What you remember is the Hogan tape, or you know some of the, the, the Brett Favre texts, or you know whatever. But like, there was a lot of value in in some of that stuff, and it all kind of gets lumped together, and 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 they get tarred with sort of being this this gutter dwelling entity, and that really wasn't them at all. But w but what they you know what it has in common you know with with some of their best stuff is a sort of relentless com uh, commitment to the truth and to being kind of anti-establishment. And that sort of seems obvious in 2019, but um, when they were sort of, you know, trying to stand out 
learning, figuring out who their, what their identity was going to be when set aside ESPN and Sports Illustrated and all these other things. I mean, that, that was a really meaningful distinction. And, um, you know, that sort of, in a lot of ways, has led them to where they are, I mean, to, to where we are right now, because the, the you know, inability, the, 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 the refusal to compromise has been a part of the identity of the site uh, from the very beginning. And there's also this, like, very close, very tight-knit culture of Deadspin writers and editors, past and present, um, which you can see by the way that, like, all these former editors from Will Leach to Craig's to... I mean, Megan Greenwell, who wasn't there at the end. I mean, she left shortly before, but how they're all just sort of like commenting on it, keeping tabs on it. It's all sort of this presence of, um, you know, internal history as well as as well as this just sort of vague concept of an identity. What do you think happens to that spirit? Because these people are going to go get different jobs. Hope they get different jobs or hope they get jobs, period, I guess, in this economy. Um it it is going to be diminished in some way, isn't it? Just because it's not going to appear in the same place. Like if we if we if we stipulate that, let's say, Pachesky and Lee and all these other people are going to write the same kind of stories they wrote there, or at least in the same you know general general with the same general attitude, voice, etc. It does get lessened, doesn't it? If it's spread out and not in the same place. Yeah, I mean, we saw that with you know the gawker exodus and i mean there, i mean this has happened any number of times when you know mag mastheads uh, are shut down and and the writers go in different directions um it's so yeah it's it's sort of it's easier for writers to keep working even though it's not an easy thing than it is for an identity to persist or that sort of voice that you're talking about yeah i mean listen it wouldn't surprise me if a, several of these people or many of these people ended up at the same place and i say that with zero inside information but yeah um you know there was an attempt not long ago to revive Gawker and, and, and this might, you know, they certainly have, um, they, you know, one would think they would have, there would be some opportunity for that sort of thing to happen here. Um, uh, because it was a, it was a profitable site, but, but it, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think, I think that if that do, failing that, then, then we're much more likely to see Deadspin go down as sort of a martyr or a, Deadspin will be a point of reference for like sports writing going into the future, probably slightly disembodied from what the actual history of Deadspin was. But I, but I think that, you know, if the future of Deadspin is a hashtag, that'll sort of be lovely and insufficient, right? I mean, if if it's just if it's if Deadspin is the new like long form, or you know <laughs> whatever long reads <laughs> hashtag, uh, what a obviously meaning something different. But you know, I mean, that would be. Uh, yeah, insufficient, like I said. Well, that Gawker is uh, a good comparison, right? Because there is Gawkerism in the media, in the larger media now, mm-hmm. after Gawker's dispersal. You know, you get everybody from like co- what Corey Seek is doing at the Times, what somebody like Tom Skoka is doing at Slate. That has that spirit to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and I think it, I think it, in a way, like Gawker has survived as a kind of because of because of editors. That's what I kind of wonder. It's like, is is deadspinism a thing in sports writing five years from now? Yeah, I think it is. But there's a difference, too, I mean, between the survival of Gawker. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, this is probably something to tease out. It would take longer than we, have, we were going to spend on this podcast and a lot more thinking than I've given it. But there's a difference sort of between, you know, how 
the legacy of Spy, right? Or the legacy of the New York Herald Tribune or whatever than it compared to Gawker because Gawker never seems to have fully left, right? I mean, Gawker, because we're living in this age of the internet, all these pieces are eminently searchable. If you if you see an article about Corey Sika getting hired at the Times and you Google him, you go back to, you know, his footprint at Gawker immediately. Um, that, that yeah, I think that, that persistence is more vital than maybe it has been in the past. And I think the Deadspin will persist that way too. I mean, I think that that it's, you know, we're already seeing the sort of people passing around the greatest hits of Deadspin on Twitter as they should. And, um, you know, pieces that, that meant a lot to them and were meaningful to them. I think it's a little bit different in sports than in, you know, for Deadspin than for Gawker because, like I said, a lot of their best stuff was, was kind of time sensitive. Um, yeah. But I also think a lot of their alums have, it's funny. One one thing that's really interesting about it seeing Pacheski and people like there have been people that have just been there a long time. Yeah. As opposed to using it as the farm team to get some other job. Mm-hmm. And then I think a second part of it is a lot of their people have not stayed in sports writing. They've just kind of gone and done other things. Megan Greenwell's working at Wired and, you know, Craig's at Mother Jones. And like, so there's pe- there are people that are, that it kind of fanned out. So maybe you just don't. And I don't, and the other thing about, about deadspinism to 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 continue to use this very awkward word is that I don't know if mainstream sports writing can accommodate that as easily as like mainstream journalism can accommodate gawkerism. Does that make sense? Like I don't yeah. know if you know when we look at the handful of sports writing institutions that still remain in the month of November, like that ESPN and all these other things are going to be able to you know, kind of absorb it in the same way. I just don't know. I, I I'd kind of hope that they would absorb parts of it and that we would see it. But like you said, maybe the answer is to just go found something else. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the problem, maybe the most improbable part of Deadspin was that it was in a lot of ways still a blog. Right. And, and, and when we, bid farewell to these sites as we've been doing to the all and to Gawker and to, I mean, there's an endless number of them. Um, you know, part of it is that, is that, you know, is, is the evolution of online media, right? I mean, part of it is, is readers taste and formats are changing. And, 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 you know, at the end of the day, maybe there's, there's probably not a big distinction between clicking on a piece from the New York times or the ringer from your Google store, you know, your, your Google news search as, and, and, or, you know, compared to Deadspin because you're just going to a story page and you're reading. Um, but you know, there institutionally, it's, it's a different sort of, it's a, it's just a subtly different format. And but I, going back to, I mean, all this is a long way of answering your question. I think that there's an endless number of ways that, you know, Deadspin can live on and, and, and maybe, maybe there will be writers and editors that go on to do different things. I mean, that was that's what we're talking about with Go Media being in, unable to to wrap their heads around what Deadspin was. It was a bigger site than sports, and I think that most people that wrote there and edited there over the years, if given the if given the option of being a culture editor or being a being the editor of a sports page at a local paper, would would take culture editor, right? I mean, they you would you, they they want a bigger portfolio than what just like straight sports coverage would would allow them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it, it it'll be it'll be it will be interesting to see what happens. Um, and and I do think it's important to point out that all those writers and all those editors are eminently capable of doing absolutely anything. It's not like they woke up every day and like 
you know, bowed to a painting of linen on the wall or something. I mean, this is this, they were they were like there was a magazine. You know, they were they were like I read were, in Barstool that they all bowed to a portrait of linen every morning. That's um, funny. I mean, it's a it, they they uh you know it's the. I mean the the care for the craft and the and the and the and the ideals that they fought for every day are you know important things that can translate to just about any realm of journalism or anything else you know so I I, I hope that I hope that the future is bright for a lot of those people. We'll talk about more about Deadspin in one second, but first, David, let us pause for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. We got a ton this week. Thank you all for sending those in. David, did you read the New York Times food critic Pete Wells annihilating Peter Luger Steakhouse this week? <laughs> yes. Lots of jokes about that. David, do you feel that in the restaurant business, reviews like this one are high stakes? <laughs> do you feel there hasn't been a murder at a steakhouse this bad since Polly Castellano got clipped outside Sparks? Do you feel, David, that Pete Wells went to a steakhouse and brought his own knife? Thanks to Isaac Chips, Alex Benton, and Jeremy Raponich for sharing those. There were a lot of heroic dogs in the news this week, David, including the ones involved in the operation that killed terrorist leader Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi. One dog in particular chased al-Baghdadi through the underground tunnel. It was an overworked Twitter joke and then instant New York Post headline to write, Zero Bark 30. And by the way, bravo, chef's kiss to that headline. Thanks to Warbler season Eric CC and Matt Craig. Also enjoyed people tweeting a pic of their own pet and writing, I have declassified this picture of my dog. Thanks to Skirt Rambus for sending that in. And finally, media consumers, that smile you can hear through your smartphone is Chris Almeida. Gloating that the Washington Nationals won the World Series. A quick rundown of World Series overworks because they were a ton. The real baby shark was the Juan Soto we met along the way. Congrats to Walgreens on becoming World Series champions. <laughs> that logo is pretty amazing. Nationals expose, expose the Astros. Oh uh, in the offseason, slugger Bryce Harper left the Nats for the Phillies, so we got tweets like signing Max Scherzer, $210 million. Signing Steven Strasburg, $175 million. Winning the World Series, Bryceless. Oh, God. Uh, also, people posting Harper's accidental slip from his Phillies intro press conference. We want to bring the title back to D.C. You did. And after Astros pitcher Roberto Osuna gave up a late run in Game 7, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Thank God they got Osuna. I'm so fucking glad they got Osuna. Thanks to ASG, Snarky Ginger, Janelle the K, Terry McDonald, B-Train, Craig Stein, Evan Combs, Johnny Caps, and Seth Sommerfeld. If you tweeted like Chris Almeida would tweet, congrats, you let me, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, time for the notebook dump, David. And for a view of what it was like to work inside the Deadspin pirate ship, we need to bring on the ringer's very own Rob Harvilla who was culture editor over there from 2014 to 2016 or thereabouts. Uh, at which point we got him and, and aren't we better for it? How are you, Rob? <laughs> I, well, I'm okay. It is. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Let me start this way. Of all the soul crushing 
parts mm. of this week's Deadspin news. What was the soul crushingest for you as a veteran of the place? Hmm. Oh goodness. Yeah. I mean, I'm heartbroken. I'm pissed, but I'm also like baffled. Like I think the most heartbreaking aspect of the whole thing is just the total confusion as to why any of this is even happening. Right. Like, like usually in this circumstance, you know, venture capitalists, whatever, come in and they make you do cheap clickbait that lowers your quality for like a very quick spike in quantity, right? Like there's there's some, there's a half-assed evil plan in effect. Like there's something to rage against. But in this instance, it's just these people dropping into, I mean, it's setting aside my time there, which was pretty minimal in the grand scheme of the site as a whole, like one of the best websites on the internet, honestly, in my opinion, I just to set upon them and to try and rip away, you know, so much of what makes the site so great, you know, this this insistence to stick to sports, which has obviously been a running joke with the site, I'm assuming since like the second post ever on the site. I, it's, I don't understand why any of this is happening. I don't understand what the master plan is to watch this steady stream of incredible people, incredible writers and editors all sort of leave, you know, in this, this awful procession over the last 24 hours. Like it's, it's really hard to describe mix of like, I'm so proud of them and so honored to have known them or worked with them and just, just, just despair. You know what I mean? I, the most specific thing I guess I can say is I think about guys like Albert Bernico, like Drew McGarry, people in my position, which is to say with kids, you know, with families, uh, to be making this decision, you know, that they believed so strongly in the site, so strongly in each other, you know, that they stood for something, that they would walk away from something like this. You know, the principle of that, you know, and the consequence of that, at least in the short term, it's just it's it's staggering to me how how admirable that is. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that latter part. And I and I don't. um it's it's an incredibly bold move, and 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 it was certainly one has to feel inspired by that. I mean, is it? I guess from the inside, and you know, as we discussed earlier, I spent uh, a little time vaguely associated with that uh, <laughs> website myself, but and 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 certainly and certainly hung out with some of the guys who worked there during the time, guys and girls who you know who were who were employed then and. But but from your point of view, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are looking at this who are wondering why, you know, what 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 the mission statement is. Like what like why 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 is this the hill that you want to die on? Why not stay and collect your paychecks and your and your insurance and and provide for your family? Like what, was it was it spoken of in terms of some sort of mission while you were there? Was it is it is it a you know is it did it feel like you're part of some you know? higher calling i mean or or is it just is this something that just sort of materializes in the moment of of sort of the extreme moment that they're in right now i think you would have been laughed out of the room you know or out of the slack channel if you ever articulated anything to that effect it's like you know we're a big family like this is our mission you know this is our cause like it's <laughs> it would have been seen as unfathomably corny to like put any words to it specifically but i think that that impulse was part of the mission and 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 part of what made it feel like a family and just it just just made it feel like something bigger than yourself or this collection of people. I mean it's 
that's a lofty way to put it. I understand. Like I'm, I'm working remotely as I am now for the ringer, like from Ohio. So my experience of the culture of this place was almost entirely through Slack was almost entirely over the internet, you know, but it's just, it was just such a fantastic collection of people from all different backgrounds and all different perspectives and all different, you know, specializations, you know, who are united by a few people, uh, you know, Tommy Craggs, one of them, Will Leach, one of them, Joe Delario. I, it's just, it, it, it had the feeling of a family without any of like the cornball aphorisms, you know, mantras, trappings of a family. It wasn't something that was talked about. It was just day by day, hour by hour, like post by post, like whether the post was something stratospheric, like, Tay hour or something like you know drew mcgarry wrote i think the worst blog in history uh, it was the musical genres ranked he did one day <laughs> and like reggae was number four and it just ached of insincerity and it was just it's the funniest thing that's ever been put on the site like it's when it was at its best and when it was at its worst like it all it all just felt like us just felt like them just felt like the site like what's so maddening about the stick to sports thing is like Deadspin at the end was not like a sports site. Like Deadspin was Deadspin. It was a place that had started from a place of sports, but had developed such a voice and such a personality and such an audience and such a command that anything that it talked about, wrote about, blogged about, reported about, it 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 all fit, even if it wasn't quote unquote sports. It just it it all made sense. Just and every new piece that came in and every new writer, editor like myself that came in just was sort of enveloped in this thing. And, you know, just try to do the best work you could and, and live up to it. But it, it really did feel like just an institution, you know, and I think a big part of the institution was never talking about it. You know, I get what, you know, it's like fight club in that way, I guess, but it's, yeah, it, it, it never really got talked about in those terms, but I think it absolutely existed in those terms. This exodus was put into motion on Monday, as you said, by the memo, the now notorious yeah. stick to sports memo from, from geo media. So as somebody who worked in the non-sports part, what do you just think that did for Deadspin? In addition to allowing well, I, everybody to be their own sort of fucked up selves in print, what, right. well, how did that add to the site, do you think? Well, I yeah, like the 85th most upsetting thing to me about this personally is like my job at Deadspin was literally to not stick to sports. Like I, I don't believe that the site had had a culture editor previous to me. And of course, like they had written about culture from the beginning. And I think first and foremost, one of the wonderful things about Deadspin was how broad culture could be, you know, it's, it's to some degree, it was criticism in like the classic way you think of it, music, movies, TV or whatever. But more often it was just, you know, for example, bears, the antics of bears, you know, a very important part of, of the Deadspin experience. And like that could be culture. And I, so that was present from the beginning, but I was brought in specifically to consolidate under all that stuff under the concourse under, you know, I, I don't know what the technical Kinja term was at the time, but the, you know, a subset of the site, the concourse was specifically devoted to everything that wasn't explicitly sports. So like these people are very angry and have basically nuked the site over the specific part of the site that I was in charge of, you know, and I, it's from the very beginning, like one of the first major things that 
I took notice of outside of the sports was Albert Benico's food spins, you know, which ran for two mm-hmm. years, you know, and as somebody, I, it, it, it's just incredible writing, you know, that went far beyond just a, a standard food recipe. And Albert, of course, went on to write about everything, including sports with like that same clarity. But I, from the beginning, Deadspin just developed an approach to things that weren't sports that still had the site's voice and command, but just proved that they could write about anything. And so, yeah, it's, I, my two years there and change were involved with specifically with bringing all that stuff together and developing it and, you know, bringing on new writers and new editors. And I, some of it was, you know, absurd, you know, it's like, I wrote about Lily Allen for Deadspin. I wrote about Grimes for Deadspin, you know, and sometimes it felt like I was uploading these pieces like directly onto a Wilco message board or something. And people were just like, (laughs) what the hell, who the hell are you? And what are you talking about? It's like, that's a totally, I get it. I get it. But like, it's, we just did very weird very strange, sometimes very bad, sometimes very good things. And just the mandates that you could try anything, both before I joined the site and after, the most astounding thing to me about the site is like how much traffic, how much attention it got and how much respect it had versus the size of the staff, you know, the number of the staff. Like, I don't know what the statistic would be if that's war or, um, you know, usage rate or whatever, but I feel like your average deadspin staffer had like the best war of anybody at any publication, Mm -hmm. you know, in internet history. It's just so many people were reading and responding to you positive and negative, like even coming from other publications like The Voice and Spin and places like that, just the shock of the size of that audience and the respect that it had was was enormous to me when I first arrived. And it's just it's just something that you fought to be worthy of and to work with the writers that they'd already developed and to bring in new people. But it's 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 just so funny that that the specific thing that's being warred over now and is in the end going to be the thing that blows up the site as we know it is like the thing that I was hired to look after. Speaking of uh, <laughs> the, the blowing up the site and this battle that's going on. Yeah. I mean, this kind of goes back to my previous question a little bit, but uh, I mean, go media and Jim Spanfeller in particular um, make for really good villains. Uh, especially right. in you know the media landscape of 2019, uh, yeah. are they are they necessary? I mean, not, I'm not that's not not necessary for the. Uh, I'm not talking some like some metaphorical way. I mm. guess would they would there have been a villain even in the absence of these villains? I mean, would would do you have to be that that despicable for it, for the Deadspin staff to have to have raged against them, or or do you or is it possible that a that a that a lighter touch from a new owner could have redirected the site without without this without this as the as the ending. The part of this is baffling to me is I I worked at Gawker Media when it was still in the twilight of it being known as Gawker Media. You know, my time there is bookended more or less by the formation of the union on one end and the Hogan trial on the other. And and that span of time to have been on the inside, even to a modest, you know, remote slack degree will leave you with a very sort of paranoid and grim and cynical view of, of journalism and like the world. And it just, it, it leads you to sort of crazy conspiracy theories with the understanding that like some of those conspiracy theories historically have turned out to be true. Like if you hated Deadspin 
and you hatched a plan to buy it for the sole purpose of destroying it, you would do what these people are doing. I, 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 it's just the Occam's razor. Like, why are these people doing what they're doing? I just, I can't get, I can't go anywhere else. And so I, you know, the Deadspin model from the onset was very antagonistic, you know, and was, was, was very centered on finding villains. You know, my first job at an alt weekly here in Columbus, like I'll never forget. One of the staff writers said to me, it's like, I need arch villains in my life. That's why I, that's why I get out of bed in the morning. And, and it's, I, I feel like Deadspin was that way to a certain extent. And obviously the, the, the hall of villains and antagonists that they built out over time is, is pretty fearsome. But I, yeah, I, I think there always is an enemy you know, and really dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of enemies, uh, you know, that's a part of the deadspin mentality. Like you're fighting against something, you're pushing it back against something. And, you know, I, I'm the millionth person to say that David Roth in particular is one of the last people on earth who is writing about Donald Trump with, you know, I, I don't think enthusiasm is the word, but just, you know, an intensity and a seriousness and a moral clarity, you know, that's just so bracing and electrifying to read. And I, I, I do think that that's, you know, the through line of Deadspin from the beginning is, is finding people to push against. And now, you know, and always trying to find the biggest possible people to push against. And like, that's been a huge source of, of trouble for the site. And, you know, that's how you make powerful enemies. And that's unfortunately how you wind up in positions like that. But it's it was worth it. You have to think, you have to hope because it's, it's, you, you were fighting for something. One last one, Robin, we'll let you go. It was a take this week. And I think probably a take when the all closed too. yeah, that the internet has become less fun. That mm. internet journalism, you know, has suffered, yeah. you, you know, a certain lack there's, there's a certain, there's something that's missing. What, what do you make of that generally? It's true. I think it's true to a degree. You know, I, I'm trying in this instance specifically and in general not to succumb totally to cynicism, you know, and, and, and to give up or, or to see, you know, the last five, 10 years as some bygone era that we'll never get back to. But it's it's dismaying when something like this happens, like what so much of my experience of Deadspin, both having worked there and having read it for a decade plus is, is just the joy of it. You know, sometimes that joy was, was expressed in anger, if not rage and despair, you know, but it's that there was just a joy in writing and just a frivolity. And it, you, you don't see writing like that anymore. You don't see writing like that with the size of the audience again, that, that Deadspin had. And I, I, I remember, I really loved the all too. And I, you know, I think Alex Balk in particular came to have a very, a very cynical view of the journalism industry and not the world. And at the time, you know, when the all was winding down, I was like, this is a terrible thing. But I, I have to believe that it's not a harbinger of like what everything's going to be like now. But it's flashing forward now to this. It's unfortunately that was writer than I wanted to concede at the time. I, I, I do think that this is a huge loss both in terms of the site itself, obviously, and all of those writers, you know, who I'm praying, you know, and I, by all rights, should be snapped up by every accident media company, you know, by the time this podcast goes live. But I, I, I have to believe that, that some measure of that joy in writing can still be found elsewhere, but it's, it is harder and harder to find. 
He belongs to us now. Rob Harvilla. <laughs> Jesus, I'm a huge downer. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> we, we've got to put up with him, and so do you. Thanks for coming on, Rob. <laughs> of course. Anytime, guys. Thanks. David, I want to talk to you about Twitter, because there was big news over there this week on Wednesday. Twitter announced it was banning all political ads starting November 22nd. According to a report from Alex Kantrowitz and Ryan Mack at BuzzFeed News, quote, Jack Dorsey said the ban will cover ads about specific candidates and issues the broadest possible ban. Some ads will be allowed to remain, including those encouraging people to vote. This, of course, comes after Facebook's bungling of the same issue. Earlier this month, after facing criticism for not sufficiently vetting political ads, Mark Zuckerberg clarified Facebook's policy, more or less saying his company wasn't interested in deciding what is and is not true and that the public can make that decision for themselves. The company's been under fire from politicians, including Elizabeth Warren. Anyway, Dorsey made the announcement of his company's new policy in a Twitter thread that concluded like this. A final note, this isn't about free expression. This is about paying for reach and paying to increase the reach of political speech has significant ramifications that today's democratic infrastructure may not be prepared to handle. It's worth stepping back in order to address. So this is an interesting one to tease out. Obviously, there are going to be issues and concerns once Twitter actually comes out with a concrete policy about this mm-hmm. and kind of really and 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 actually clarifies what's going to happen here in The Verge. Addie Robertson wrote a column titled Twitter's political ban raises one big issue. What is an issue? Referring to the category of issue ads, which Twitter created in 2018 as part of an attempt to increase transparency around political campaigns. Uh, issue advocacy, he writes, can includes two categories, ads that refer to an election or a clearly identified candidate and ads that advocate for legislative issues of national importance. So Twitter identifies abortion, healthcare, guns, climate change, immigration and taxes as legislative issues, although that's not an exhaustive list. Robertson continues, Twitter maintains a list of certified issue advertiser accounts in their campaigns, which offers a little more insight into what the new policy might cover. It includes well-known advocacy groups like Planned Parenthood Action and Freedom Works, as well as the lobbying branches of big companies like Verizon. But it's still unclear which groups are going to get exemptions under the new policy and which news outlets will be moderated, etc. Spokespeople for Twitter told The Verge, we are working through details now and we'll provide more details on the final definition. Too long didn't read. We need to know more about this, right? Because... It, it it feels so much of what he did. I believe he actually did this on Twitter is is, is a Jack Dorsey subtweet of Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, 100%. And then so how do you turn your subtweet into an actual policy? And one that makes sense, right? Because again, and, and I think that's, and that's the case. It's funny. It's funny. It's almost like both tech billionaires decided to just simplify it as much as they could. Zuckerberg went for it. We can't do anything. I'm going to throw mm-hmm. up my hands. And Dorsey went for the opposite. We're just not going to allow anything. And now the real question is, what about all the stuff that inevitably falls into the middle? Yeah. I mean, I think the, 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 one of the big points of frustration with Facebook users and, and you know, Congress people alike um, is that sort of throwing up of the hands, right? Because if there were a technical glitch that affected a quarter of the Facebook profiles and made them unreadable or unusable or whatever else, Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't throw up his hands and say, the problem's just too big for us to try to solve, right? I mean, this, like, like there's not a problem. The idea that there's a problem 
too too big to to be managed. Mm-hmm. I mean, a problem so concise that is too big to be managed. And don't get me wrong; it would take a ton of uh, human power and hours and and you know technical know how and everything else. But the idea that the problem is too big for them to handle, uh, you know, raises a lot more questions than it should answer. Um, and so, uh, part of what makes Jack Dorsey's um, statement, though bereft of detail significant is the implied commitment to making that work one way or the other. And the fact that they haven't hashed out all of the details at this early stage, yes, coming out with the statement without, you know, without uh, all of the details certainly was, a you know, I think something more uh, deliberate than a subtweet. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it was, you know, he, he did that in a very specific way and at a very specific time, an hour before the earnings, the Facebook earnings call. But yeah, that was funny. But um, but the fact that he's, you know, they haven't hashed out all the details, I think, is in some ways a sort of, I mean, to me, maybe I'm being too generous, a sort of reassuring admission that it's a bigger problem than just like a tweet or two can 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 solve. Right. And that it's not it's not just the opposite of one throwing up one's hands. It's a you know it's it's a broad commitment that'll take some time to to really hash out and, and and put into motion. Yeah, and I think we need to come back to this when we see the details, because that 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 will be the moment where we where we actually can judge the policy a lot better. It does feel like both of these are just just you know two different ways for tech overlords to say, "Don't blame me for the inevitable shittiness that's about to happen in the 2020 election," if it hasn't happened already. Right. Zuckerberg saying, I, I don't want anybody blaming me for taking a political ad off Facebook and saying I'm anti-conservative or I'm I'm pro-conservative or what, you know, or whatever. Right. And then Dorsey essentially making the same uh, argument, but in the opposite way. It's mm-hmm. not my fault when 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 the you know, when the Russians meddle with the election, when this happens, when Trump wins again, it, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. So. It's also in some ways a deflection. And listen, I don't know the details and I, and and of of all of the ways that foreign entities influenced our election and and how they kind of you know wormed their way into the various social media sites. But the the complaint against Facebook, I mean, in the last election cycle, the complaint leveled against Facebook was ads, and against Twitter for the most part was like Russian bots that you know that were affecting the conversation, not so much paid ads. Um, so it, you know, it's it's a he is he's he's actively like solving a problem that 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 is a problem for Facebook more so than it is a problem for Twitter, or at least up until this point. But kudos to him for solving it because I'm sure it's a, I mean it, because it is indeed a significant issue, even if it wasn't the loudest complaint leveled against this company. We haven't had an anonymous source of the week in a while, so I was delighted to see a piece in Politico Monday reporting that Jeff Sessions. Former Senator and U.S. Attorney General might run for his old Senate seat in Alabama against Democrat Doug Jones. Now, when reporting the piece, Politico apparently didn't get the conventional no comment from Sessions, and they didn't include the, you know, fairly conventional Jeff Sessions couldn't be reached for comment or something like that. They gave us this, David. I want you to listen carefully. A person familiar with Sessions' thinking declined to comment for this story. A person familiar with Sessions is thinking to decline. Now, what is that? <laughs> so you called somebody who knows Jeff Sessions. They said, this is off the record, right? Or this is on background, right? And you said, yeah. And then they go, well, I have no comment. That That's nothing. 
that that's 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 not a that's not even a kernel of news. That'd be like if we heard that you were leaving the ringer to go become a professional wrestler, and some reporter called me and said, "Hey, is it true about David?" And I said, "Is this off? Is this off the record?" And they said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, I I, I can't comment." <laughs> well, you just don't include that, right? I, go, right? I don't understand. How is that getting us closer to anything? Is it the? I mean, we have to read between the lines. If this were, I think that. Maybe if something different were said, or maybe most people sitting in a, you know, in a, an editorial office looking at this would assume that the only person familiar with Sessions thinking that would be worth quoting on background to say nothing would be Jeff Sessions himself, right? So do our reader was, I mean, is it, is the writer just assuming that we can make that inference and that's why it's worth inclusion? No, I think, I think what they're doing is saying we made, it's the, we made an effort to to ask somebody whether this story was true or not, somebody representing Jeff Sessions. And we couldn't get to Sessions himself, who may not have a press secretary at this point, right? He's kind of in private citizen mode. Mm-hmm. So this is our this is us saying we tried to get to do our journalistic due diligence. I just don't understand, like, somebody familiar with his thinking declined to comment. <laughs> I got, okay. Anyway, thanks to Greg Horowitz for sending that along. <laughs> Uh, I have some fun with talking heads for you. A few months back, I read you a New York Times story, David, about that In-N-Out burger that was found in Queens. And the talking head the Times writer quoted was named John Hamburger. (laughs) And when John Hamburger was born, it was his destiny to become the dialogue quote for that story. Well, our pal Daniel Offman sent in a clip from Fox News in in which they were covering Mike Pence going in on the NBA in China. I want you to listen closely to the surname of the talking head Fox News consulted. <laughs> Vice President Mike Pence weighing in on the NBA China controversy, slamming the association for being too soft on the nation. Here to react as the author of Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept, retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. Robert Spaulding <laughs> was called in for an NBA story. The next segment, they uh, consulted Fantastic. Thomas Helmet Sunday about the World Series. So uh, that was that was great, too. Listener mail, David. Last week, we talked about Ross Douthat, New York Times columnist, and what happens when a writer and a parody of a writer becomes indistinguishable. And we asked our listeners, what should we call this phenomenon? Help us give it a catchy name. Well, Kayfabe Raven suggests the parody singularity. And Travis, Michael P., Andy Palmer, and the Drizzle suggest the parody. Now, I like both of those. I'm not sure that is going to quite achieve the Ewing theory level of familiarity, singularity, but 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 I like the thought. <laughs> Luke Holy suggests uh, he fell into the sarcasm chasm. He's hit the apery apex. Uh, she's finished the caricature arc. That's kind of funny. Drank the unironic <laughs> tonic. She's in Lampoon Lagoon. He's hit the ribbing point. Uh, <laughs> lots lots of good puns there. Uh, I kind of like caricature arc. That's pretty funny. Uh, finally, Mark. CMCOC, I'm sorry, Mark, suggests the term the Pacino, which I might change to Pacinoing. And I do kind of like that a little bit. You know, you talked about Hasselhoffing last week. <laughs> yeah. But Pacino is actually a good actor. And even when there's like a parody Pacino performance, you can appreciate it. So Pacinoing, I think, is on the right, on the right track. Anyway, we will continue to 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 monitor this. And thanks for all the suggestions. Uh, last episode, we talked about Trump's speech after the death of uh, terrorist leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Listener Cameron Glenn writes, 
I'm getting the sense that David kind of secretly wants to be a Trump fan because Trump has a whole dumb wrestler ethos about him and he's a wrestling fan. <laughs> I'm starting it's starting to leak out a bit and it's kind of starting to get weird. Like Shea Serrano says, fuck Trump. Uh David, do you have any response to listener Cameron Glenn? Uh yeah, fuck Trump. <laughs> I um I will say in David's defense that David is an appreciator as he is in his wrestling writing and commentary of performance and he, he is critiquing performance. So if you, if you, if you, if you get any of that, that's absolutely what that is. David Shoemaker is not going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020. Uh, this from duty 86. I guess one of us last week executed a clever segue on the pod and duty writes. I heard you guys celebrating a slick move between segments. Is that a hard to do media move? Danny Heifetz loves a smooth one, and even an old pro like Al Michaels on NBC was happy with his work the other night. Love to hear your take. Um, to that, I would say that media members celebrating their own segues is like one of the oldest it's forms so of media onanism. I mean, isn't it not? I mean, I remember, so when, nice. yeah. I remember when I was like watching Dan and Keith tape it this summer. Dan and Keith would go, segue, segue. This is like in 1992. So, uh, we love it, don't we? When we when we can pass one, I I think there's also an element. I mean, certainly this is a very onanism is the right word. It's very self congratulatory uh, when you can point those things out. But I also think that like working for the like trying to suss out the segue in old news media was just like one of the most uh, just trying tasks. You get through all like the <laughs> you know the difficult. I mean, you get through the real part of the job, and then you got to figure out how to transition from like you know, a congressional bill passing to a pumpkin carving contest or something right. or vice versa. Mm -hmm. That when, that what you hear a lot is people stumbling backwards into them, you know? I mean, you'll, you'll hear some, somebody will, I mean, I know that that happens to us, but Al Michaels, whoever else on, on you know, you see here on TV will just, will just accident, accident, you know, just happen upon a good segue. And when it happens, it's just a eureka moment and you, you totally. have no other choice but to high five the person in the booth next to you because, Something just incredible has happened. It's such a small and insignificant thing, but like taking taking joy in it and seeing other people take joy in it is just, I mean, it just never ceases to be fun for me. Totally. I love the local news anchor says, he does a political story and says, and speaking of pork barrel politics, there was a giant pig at the state fair <laughs> Sunday. Our correspondent, you know, just, that, that just shit eating grin. Yeah. Oh, well, that was a smooth segue, buddy. Uh, this, David, one more note comes from Adrian Funtimes, listener. Apparently, Chris Hayes at MSNBC read a tweet from David French, you know, the conservative commentator. And uh -huh. Hayes agreed with David French's tweet. So he quote tweeted it and wrote, this is exactly right. Now, does that catchphrase sound familiar at all to you, Pressbox listeners? And our listener, Adrian Funtimes, then quote tweeted Hayes and, and wrote, cease and desist at Pressbox. <laughs> Get your own anodyne catchphrase, Hayes. Speaking of anodyne catchphrases, segue. Oh, nice segue. David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Here we go. Uh, Tuesday's headline was Bama Boozled. And by the way, Misha Berkowitz uh, says, shouldn't it have been Hogtide? T-I-D-E <laughs> for the Crimson Tide? I think, I think Misha's right. Today's post-Halloween pun is from ABC News. It was sent in by Jake and Matthew V. Uh, the story, David, is from Cleveland, Tennessee. It's about a man who grew a 900-pound pumpkin. 900-pound pumpkin. He hollowed it out and turned it into a boat. This is real. There's video of him floating around in the water in the pumpkin. 
and paddling around with an oar. Okay. So the pumpkin became a boat. What was the ABC News's strained pun headline? Oh, man. It's a pun. Uh, wait, did this, was it a Halloween related thing? I mean, is it going to be a jack o' lantern? Uh, yeah, nominally, but I think the important, like a, the important thing here is that a pumpkin, if I'm reading the literature correct, and by literature, I mean a random Southern Living article I found, that a pumpkin is semi-technically also a gourd. Right. I was just about to say, oh, my gourd, but that's not right. Uh, You're getting there. G- uh, gourd. Um, Gore, uh, uh, gore to death, gored out of our minds. No, these are. I'm just. I'm gore just talking. Gore to death is great. What is the boat? What? Uh, Maybe you're welcoming somebody. Oh, all aboard! All aboard! Fantastic! <laughs> all aboard! All aboard! Thank you, thank you to whoever wrote that on ABC News. That's <laughs> that's just amazing work. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris. I made a production magic. By Jim Cunningham, the official band of this podcast is Gin Blossoms. We're back Tuesday, bright and early with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. giant pig at the state fair Sunday. Yeah. But first, what I want to know is, what is that? No matter whose side you're on, even if you were convicted of that that notion, it does seem... Too long didn't read. I mean, to me, maybe I'm being too generous. We don't want you to do anything you're doing. It does seem wacky. <laughs> okay. Get your own anodyne catchphrase. In a fight with an asshole boss. 